0: Chapter Thirty Two of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Thirty Two The Thousand Pounds The Stranger's Precautions. Varney moved not now, nor did he speak, but like a statue he stood with his unearthly-looking eyes riveted upon the door of the apartment. In a few moments one of his servants came and said, Sir, a person is here who says he wants to see you. He desired me to say that he had ridden far, and that moments were precious when the tide of life was ebbing fast. Yes, yes, gasped Varney. Admit him. I know him. Bring him here. It is an old friend of mine." He sank into a chair, and still he kept his eyes fixed upon that door through which his visitor must come. Surely some secret of dreadful moment must be connected with him who Sir Francis expected, dreaded, and yet dared not refuse to see. And now a footstep approaches. A slow and a solemn footstep. It pauses a moment at the door of the apartment and then the servant flings it open, and a tall man enters. He is enveloped in the folds of a horseman's cloak, and there is the clank of spurs upon his heels as he walks into the room. Varney rose again, but he said not a word, and for a few moments they stood opposite each other in silence. The domestic has left the room, and the door is closed, so that there was nothing to prevent them from conversing, and yet, silent, they continued for some minutes it seemed as if each was most anxious that the other should commence the conversation first and yet there was nothing so very remarkable in the appearance of that stranger which should entirely justify sir francis varney in feeling so much alarm at his presence he certainly was a man past the prime of life and he looked like one who had battled much with misfortune and as if time had not passed so lightly over his brow but that it had left deep traces of its progress The only thing positively bad about his countenance was to be found in his eyes. There was a most ungracious and sinister expression, a kind of lurking and suspicious look, as if he were always resolving in his mind some deep-laid scheme, which might be sufficient to circumvent the whole of mankind. Finding, probably, that Varney would not speak first, he let his cloak fall more loosely about him, and in a low, deep tone he said, "'I presume I was expected.' "'You were,' said Varney. "'It is the day, and it is the hour. "'You are right. "'I like to see you so mindful. "'You don't improve in looks since—' "'Hush! "'Hush! "'No more of that. "'Can we not meet without a dreadful allusion to the past? "'There needs nothing to remind me of it, "'and your presence here now shows that you are not forgetful. "'Speak not of that fearful episode.' let no words combine to place it in a tangible shape to human understanding i cannot dare not hear you speak of that it is well said the stranger as you please let our interview be brief you know my errand i do so fearful a drag upon limited means is not likely to be readily forgotten oh you are too ingenious too full of well-laid schemes and too apt and ready in their execution to feel as any fearful drag the conditions of our bargain why do you look at me so earnestly because said varney and he trembled as he spoke because each liniment of your countenance brings me back to the recollection of the only scene in life that made me shudder and which i cannot think of even with the indifference of contempt I see it all before my mind's eye, coming in frightful panoramic array. Those incidents, which even to dream of, are sufficient to drive the soul to madness. The dread of this annual visit hangs upon me like a dark cloud upon my very heart. It sits like some foul incubus, destroying its vitality and dragging me from day to day, nearer to that tomb, from whence, not as before, I can emerge you have been among the dead said the stranger i have and yet are mortal yes repeated varney yes and yet am mortal it was i that plucked you back to that world which to judge from your appearance has had since that eventful period but few charms for you by my faith you look like like what i am interrupted varney this is a subject that once a year gets frightfully renewed between us. For weeks before your visit I am haunted by frightful recollections, and it takes me many weeks after you are gone before I can restore myself to serenity. Look at me. Am I not an altered man? In faith you are, said the stranger. I have no wish to press upon you painful recollections. And yet, Tis strange to me that upon such a man as you, the event to which you allude should produce so terrible an impression. I have passed through the agony of death, said Varney, and have again endured the torture, for it is such, of the reunion of the body and the soul, not having endured so much, not the faintest echo of such feelings can enter into your imagination. There may be truth in that, and yet, like a fluttering moth around a flame, it seems to me that when I do see you, you take a terrific kind of satisfaction in talking of the past. That is strictly true, said Varney. The images with which my mind is filled are frightful. Pent up do they remain for twelve long months. I can speak to you, and you only, without disguise, and thus does it seem to me that I get rid of the uneasy load of horrible imaginings. When you are gone, and have been gone a sufficient lapse of time, my slumbers are not haunted with frightful images. I regain a comparative peace until the time slowly comes round again when we are doomed to meet. I understand you. You seem well lodged here. I have never kept my word and sent to you telling you where I am. You have, truly. I have no shadow of complaint to make against you. No one could have more faithfully performed his bond than you have. I give you ample credit for all that, and long may you live still to perform your conditions. I dare not deceive you, although to keep such faith I may be compelled to deceive a hundred others. Of that I cannot judge. Fortune seems to smile upon you. You have not as yet disappointed me. And will not now, said Varney. The gigantic and frightful penalty of disappointing you stares me in the face. I dare not do so. He took from his pocket, as he spoke, a clasped book, from which he produced several banknotes, which he placed before the stranger. A thousand pounds, he said. That is the agreement. It is, to the very letter, I do not return to you a thousand thanks. We understand each other better than to waste time with idle compliment. Indeed, I will go quite as far as to say, truthfully, that did not my necessities require this amount from you, you should have the boon for which you pay that price at a much cheaper rate. Enough, enough, said Varney. It is strange that your face, should have been the last I saw when the world closed upon me, and the first that met my eyes when I was again snatched back to life. Do you pursue still your dreadful trade? Yes, said the stranger, for another year, and then, with such a moderate competence as fortune has assigned me, I retire, to make way for younger and abler spirits. And then, said Varney, shall you still require of me such an amount as this, no this is my last visit but one i shall be just and liberal towards you you are not old and i have no wish to become the clog of your existence as i have before told you it is my necessity and not my inclination that sets the value upon the service i rendered you i understand you and ought to thank you and in reply to so much courtesy be assured that when i shudder at your presence it is not that i regard you with horror as an individual but it is because the sight of you awakens mournfully the remembrance of the past it is clear to me said the stranger and now i think we part with each other in a better spirit than we ever did before and when we meet again the remembrance that it is the last time will clear away the gloom that i now find hanging over you it may it may with what an earnest gaze you still regard me. I do. It does appear to me most strange that time should not have obliterated the effects which I thought would have ceased with their cause. You are no more the man than in my recollection you once were, than I am like a sporting child. And I never shall be, said Varney, never, never again. self selfsame look which the hand of death has placed upon me I shall ever wear, I shudder at myself, and as I oft perceive the eye of idle curiosity fixed steadfastly upon me, I wonder in my inmost heart if even the wildest guesser hits upon the cause why I am not like unto other men. No, of that you may depend, there is no suspicion. But I will leave you now. We part such friends, as men situated as we are can be. Once again shall we meet, and then, farewell forever. Do you leave England, then? I do. You know my situation in life. It is not one which offers me inducements to remain. In some other land I shall win the respect and attention I may not hope for here. There my wealth will win many golden opinions, and casting, as best I may, the veil of forgetfulness over my former life, my declining years may yet be happy this money that i have had of you from time to time has been more pleasantly earned than all beside wrung as it has been from your fears still have i taken it with less reproach and now farewell varney rang for a servant to show the stranger from the house and without another word they parted then when he was alone that mysterious owner of that costly home drew a long breath of apparently exquisite relief That is over. That is over, he said. He shall have the other thousand pounds, perchance sooner than he thinks. With all expedition I will send it to him, and then on that subject I shall be at peace. I shall have paid a large sum, but that which I purchased was to me priceless. It was my life. It was my life itself. That possession which the world's wealth cannot restore— and shall I grudge these thousands which have found their way into this man's hands? No, tis true that existence for me has lost some of its most resplendent charms. tis true that I have no earthly affections, and that shunning companionship with all, I am alike shunned by all, and yet while the life-blood still will circulate within my shrunken veins, I cling to vitality he passed into an inner room and taking from a hook on which it hung a long dark-coloured cloak he enveloped his tall unearthly figure within its folds then with his hat in his hand he passed out of his house and appeared to be taking his way towards bannerworth hall surely it must be guilt of no common dye that could oppress a man so destitute of human sympathies as sir francis varney The dreadful suspicions that hovered round him with respect to what he was appeared to gather confirmation from every act of his existence. Whether or not this man, to whom he felt bound to pay annually so large a sum, was in the secret, and knew him to be something more than earthly, we cannot at present declare, but it would seem from the tenor of their conversation as if such were the fact perchance he had saved him from the corruption of the tomb by placing out on some sylvan's plot where the cold moonbeams fell the apparent lifeless form and now claimed so large a reward of such a service and the necessary secrecy contingent upon it we say this may be so and yet again some more natural and rational explanation may unexpectedly present itself and there may be yet a dark page in Sir Francis Varney's life's volume which will place him in a light of superadded terrors to our readers. Time, and the now rapidly accumulating incidents of our tale, will soon tear aside the veil of mystery that now envelops some of our dramatis personae, and let us hope that in the development of these incidents we shall be enabled to rescue the beautiful Flora Bannerworth from the despairing gloom that is around her, let us hope and even anticipate that we shall see her smile again that the roseate hue of health will again revisit her cheeks the light buoyancy of her step return and that as before she may be the joy of all around her dispensing and receiving happiness and he too that gallant fearless lover he whom no chance of time or tide could sever from the object of his fond affections he who listened to nothing but the dictates of his heart's best feelings, let us indulge a hope that he will have a bright reward, and that the sunshine of a permanent felicity will only seem the brighter for the shadows that for a time have obscured its glory. End of chapter 32 Recording by Roger Moline